morning we're going to consider this question, well, what about members? What's the role of members? And we're going to think about two areas. Uh, the biggest area that we're going to think about is the role that members play in the whole life of the church. And then we're also going to think about decision-making and the part that, el- that members play in that. So let's just pray and ask for God's help. Father, we want to thank you that we have your word. And as we open the Bible and read it, we can be confident that it is you speaking to us. And so we ask that your spirit would take up that word and help us to apply it, each of us, to our own lives. And we thank you for the privilege of gathering as your people and declaring your glory. You are worthy to be praised. In Christ's name, amen. Before we get to the role, I think it's very important to know who we are. You know, uh, what we do is a function of who we are. Do you know who you are? I think I've told the story before about um, a celebrity who was invited to a nursing home for a charity event. And as time went on, he became became a bit more anxious because no one seemed to be asking him for autographs or, 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 or um, you know, selfies and and he thought, well, you know, they, they don't know who I am. So he, he went up to an old lady and he said, do you know who I am? And she gave him a big smile and he thought, oh, phew, all those years of, of working towards my fame uh, were not wasted. She said, don't worry, the nurse will be along soon and she'll tell you who you are. <laughs> do you, you know who you are. Actually, more specifically this morning, do you know who we are? It's very important that we know who we are. And uh, what, what does God have to say? Well, let's open our Bibles back to 1 Peter chapter 2, and you'll find this on page 1,218. Page 1,218. 1 Peter chapter 2. And let me direct your attention particularly to verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see that there's two groups of people in the world? There are people who've not received the mercy of God, who are not part of the people of God. And there are those who have received mercy and who are part of the people of God. And notice too that you can change from one group to the other. There was a time when the readers were not a people but There was a great change. Now, you are the people of God. There was a time when his readers had not experienced God's mercy, but there was a moment of salvation. Now, you have received God's mercy. Now, how does this change come about? How do you move from one group to the other? Well, the answer is there in verse 4 of chapter 2. As you come to him, The living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. It's by coming to a person. It's by coming to Jesus, the Messiah King. 
although rejected by the leaders of the nation in his day and crucified, in his resurrection, God declared that here is the chosen Messiah King. Here's the one that was the most precious to God who will rule over God's everlasting kingdom. And all who believe in him experience the mercy of God. They, they receive forgiveness of their sins made possible by his death in our place. As you read through the Old Testament, you'll see it's an unfolding narrative of history. And you can see how central is the place of uh, initially the tabernacle and then when they got into the land, the, the, the temple. The temple was a, a vital part of their national life because it represented that God had come to make his dwelling place amongst his people. God lived among them. And so if they wanted to approach God, they would go to the temple and offer sacrifices there. And, and, uh, and that would be the reminder that God was there amongst them. And Peter takes up the imagery of this stone temple and uh, uses it to apply to them as New Testament Christians. Uh, Jesus is clearly the fulfillment of that temple. He's described in verse 4 as the living stone, for he was resurrected from the dead. He's described as the cornerstone in verse 6 because um, his people now base their lives solely on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And he is the, the capstone, verse 7, in that he is preeminent over his people. He is king of kings, lord of lords. He's the chief shepherd, as we considered a few weeks ago. So it is through trusting Jesus that we're brought into this new relationship with, with God, that we experience now the presence of God uh, dwelling in our lives, all because of, of Jesus, uh, we now, as those who've trusted him, we have a brand new identity. And um, we live in a time where identity matters more than anything. Identity politics are rife. And so it's very important as Christians that we understand our fundamental identity. And there's three images taken from the Old Testament, originally applied to um, the nation of Israel, now applied to um, God's church, those who are uh, Jewish people and non-Jewish people who put their trust in Jesus. And the three images are spiritual temple, royal priesthood, and holy nation. Interestingly, all three are corporate identities. So let's think about it. Verse 5. Uh, if you look at verse 4, again, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a spiritual temple. Where can people go in Edinburgh to meet with God? The answer is go wherever you find Christian believers gathering together. Uh, because, I don't know, of custom and because it's convenient, we often refer to buildings as churches. Of course they're not. Uh, in, I think in New England they used to call them meeting houses which helps clarify things um, this is not a temple it's a very convenient rain shelter it's a very commodious meeting house where we can all gather the spiritual temple 
are God's people who gather together here. That is the temple. Um, And we, like living stones, each one of us, are saved individually by God's grace. But, you know, we were designed to be built together, to exist together as part of his church. As an aside, uh, if you say you're a Christian but you're not a member of a church, you're about as useful as a brick lying on waste ground. Not very useful. Bricks, you know, does anyone just have a brick and they hold it and go, oh, how useful a brick is. Oh, no, they don't. Bricks are only useful because you put them together and you make buildings. And buildings are really helpful. So I want to appeal to you. If, you're, if, you're, if you say you're a Christian but you're not a member of a church, don't be a useless brick. Uh, be a living stone that will be built together to be part of this spiritual temple. Which, which local church gathering do you belong to? Are you a part of? And you see, as we gather together, we in some way manifest the presence of God in Edinburgh. Uh, Jesus promises where two or three are gathered together. There I am and dwell amongst them. There's a sense in which people encounter Jesus in a very unique and special way as they, as they go to where God's people gather together. And you know, what's wonderful is that this is the testimonies I'm hearing for people. They come in the door, they're not Christians, and they're blown away. Here's a group of people, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, and they, they, they just seem to enjoy praising God. They, they seem to be very excited about Jesus, and people are blown away. And they say, something's going on here. There's, there's something happening here. They, they see people's lives who were, were not Christians becoming Christians, and their lives are changing, and they're going, what's, what is this? That's the joy of being part of this spiritual temple where God dwells by his spirit. Second picture, royal priesthood. Verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, we're described as 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 a royal priesthood. So not only are we a spiritual temple, but if you have come to Christ, you are part of the priests of that temple. A royal priesthood, in fact. Um, In Exodus 19, Moses tells Israel how they should see themselves. They were called to be a priestly kingdom amongst the nations. What's the job description of a priest? Well, ordinarily, priests make God known to the people, and intercede for the people before God, offering sacrifices of atonement. That's what happens as you read the Exodus and Leviticus accounts of the Old Testament. And God was calling the whole uh, of Israel as a community to be priestly, to make God known amongst the nations by their national life. And to call the nations to come to know the true and living God and to find atonement through sacrifice. That was the job of Israel. They were supposed to commend the goodness and the glory of God. Now, Peter writes these Christians made up of uh, probably more Gentiles than Jewish people uh, who have now come to trust Jesus. And he says, now, we have become God's holy priesthood, his royal priesthood. Now, according to the New Testament, there's no special class of Christian called a priest. 
Uh, I'm not especially a priest um, any more than any other member of this church is. You see, every believer in this room has equal access to the Father through Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Um, I'm delighted to pray with anyone. But you know what? My prayers don't get heard any quicker or are any more efficient than any other believer in this room. We all have the privilege of, you know, when we meet together, say, hey, can I pray for you in that? And praying for each other, interceding for each other. Um, We don't need special people called priests. Uh, We don't need the Pope. Uh, We don't need archbishops. If you've come to Christ, you're a born-again, spirit-filled believer, you are a priest. Whether you're a man or a woman, you are a priest. You're part of a royal priesthood. Do you know that? Do you know who you are? We are the spiritual temple. We are a royal priesthood. Well, so stand up straight. Put the shoulders back. That's who we are. And so when you know who you are, then you can begin to think about, well, that just changes what I do. Um, Notice that we're not called to offer animal sacrifices anymore. You've noticed that. There's not many sheep or goats being killed up front. Uh, And that's because the Bible's an unfolding story. And all those animal sacrifices were pointing forward to Jesus, who was, in a sense, the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could atone for our sins and make us right before God. All those animal, animal sacrifices were prefiguring that one sacrifice. But we are royal priests, and we are called to make spiritual sacrifices, it says. What are some of the spiritual sacrifices that we offer up? Well, just think more widely in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12 tells us that, um, uh, that the way we use our bodies in the whole of our lives is a living sacrifice. Offer up your bodies as living sacrifices, it says. So every area of how I use my body can actually be a, a priestly act of worship and delight in God. This transforms how I view my work, uh, how I treat my family, Um, how I drive, how I brush my teeth. It's it's everything, isn't it? Everything about my life can be an act of worship to this this creator. And also financial giving. Philippians chapter 4. Paul rejoices at the way that they uh, were so kind as to send him money as he was in prison to provide for his needs. And he says this, uh, that their, their financial gift is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. If you've chosen to give by standing order to regularly give to this church or you choose to give through you know, zapping that code on the form and giving digitally or putting in the boxes, that's an act of our spiritual worship that actually God delights in. Uh, Hebrews 13 verse 15 uh, talks about the, the praise of our lips. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that confess his name. One of the reasons that Sunday is so encouraging is that we have these musicians who help us uh, to sing the praises of God. I'm so, that's, I find that so encouraging to come. To declare his praises amongst his people. I'm not so good on my own. But when I'm together uh, with the living stones, boy, it's fantastic to declare his praises together. Or Hebrews 13 verse 16 
uh, it talks about doing good and sharing. Do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. These are the sort of spiritual sacrifices that we offer now in, in the light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. These are ways that we can act as priests in the world. All of it made acceptable to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So do you know who we are? We are a spiritual temple. We are a royal priesthood. And lastly, we are a holy nation, verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is who we are. This is our fundamental identity. God's saved people who live for his praise and his glory. What a privilege to be such a people. We've got a world that doesn't really know why it's here or what it's about. But we do. And, and it actually, we have lots of identities, but this is our ultimate identity. You know, what's more important in the world is not whether you're a Welsh person or a Scottish person, but are you part of the people of God? It's not whether you're upper class, middle class, lower class, or some other sort of class. It's that you're, you're part of this holy nation. We are living as a, a, a radical expression to the world of what is to come. A people made from every uh, tongue, kindred, nation, who worship the one God together. Now, because we're all part of this spiritual temple, this holy nation, this royal priesthood, then that sets kind of the expectations of how we as members live together in our life together and, and how we make decisions together. And we're just going to think about those two aspects, our life and then our decision making. So firstly, our life. So please turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, page 1220. And you'll see some of the ways that this the theological identity works itself out practically. Uh, we considered these verses um, last year, didn't we, at the start of the year? 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. We know that history is heading somewhere. Jesus Christ is returning in full glory as the king and judge, and so we know that life has a purpose and a meaning. Uh, we know that there's a limited time where we get to make a difference in the world for Jesus. So the end of all things is near. So what? How should we live in the light of that? What's our priorities, church members? Firstly, pray. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Of course, that's the first thing. We're a priestly people. This is one of the privileges of being a priest, to intercede for the people before God. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul reminds Timothy that uh, he urges, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good. And it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. What a privilege. We, we, we are called upon to intercede for this nation, for the leaders, for peace, 
for the spread of the gospel because God delights to save people and the gospel needs to go out. These are sort of the things that shape our prayers as a priestly people. We began the, the year with a week of prayer. There are opportunities every Sunday to, uh, to come and pray. But before the 9 o'clock, you're welcome to join us at 8.30 for some prayer. Uh, before the evening service at 6, we meet for 45 minutes to pray. Any of you can come. We meet upstairs. And uh, I believe that next week we're going to learn from Andy Amer that the first Sunday of the month he wants to dedicate to pray for some of the prodigals in our family. You might want to join with others to pray for some of the prodigals. Uh, but we're going to focus on prayer on those, uh, uh, in those slots. Second thing, love. Verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. See, as God's people, we know the redeeming grace of God who forgave our sins, who showed us mercy. Then we will be a church that loves uh, I often say membership classes that the first duty of membership is turning up, is attendance. You cannot uh, say you love people if you don't bother gathering with them and meeting with them and getting to know them. And so the essential aspect of membership is turning up. How else will you be able to love people? How else will people be able to love you? And so actually when people sort of attend infrequently, it's a love issue. Uh, there's an issue going on in their lives, uh, either selfishness or sin that's distracting them. If you're sick, you're in hospital, we understand, we want to take care of you. But, what, you know, able-bodied people who don't come, it's a love issue, the Bible says. And so we had to be a people who, a priestly people who, who uh, pray and who love each other, who look for ways to encourage, to nurture others. Uh, we're people who want to believe the best of others. And we're people that will need to learn how to deal when we upset each other. Um, it's bound to happen because when none of us are perfect yet. Uh, we're going to say and do things that we regret. And so we've got to learn that how love is about asking for, giving, and receiving forgiveness. Um, sometimes people inadvertently or maybe intentionally hurt us by the things that they say. And what are we supposed to do when that happens? Well, sadly, often we tend to tell everybody else about how terrible that person was to us and not talk to them. And the Bible tells us the exact opposite. Don't talk to lots of other people. Talk to that person. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 says this. If your brother or sister sins against you, um, go show him his fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. And do you know what? Even if we're aware that someone is upset about us, they've got something against us, we should be also be seeking to sort it out. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Isn't that extraordinary? You're about to offer a gift to God. And Jesus says, actually, before you do that, it's really important you sort out your relationship with your brothers and sisters. That's, that's got to be pretty important then, isn't it? And then come and offer your gift. To be a church that loves, we've got to be willing to ask people to, to forgive us. 
I am sorry that I said or did that. Will you forgive me? Now, often when people ask us that, we get embarrassed. And uh, we pretend that it's no big deal. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, you don't need to. No, no, no. You know, as if you weren't really upset and crying about it uh, when you were. Um, and that's a terrible way to, to respond when people ask you to forgive you. Instead, if you mean it, you say, yes, I forgive you. And when you say, I forgive you, this is what you mean. You're never going to bring the matter up again in your conversation. You're never going to hold it against that person. You're not going to recall it to yourself. You're not going to recall it to them or to others. It's costly and hard to forgive each other, but that's what love does. Love covers over a multitude of sins. We're only going to be a priestly people, a holy nation, if we can learn to forgive each other and love each other in this way. Thirdly, hospitality, verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I love how the Bible knows what we're like. Um, you know, uh, at one level we like the idea of hanging out with people, but when it's in our house and they mess up our house and eat our food that we pay for, sometimes we do grumble. But he says, no, offer hospitality without grumbling. Um, I think corporate sponsorship has kind of ruined the idea of hospitality. Hospitality means now, oh, we've got fantastic marquee, and you're going to get exclusive tickets to a great event and get some lovely canapes. Well, that's, that's robbed us of what hospitality is. Hospitality, biblical hospitality, is saying, I've got two clean cups. Would you like to come around for a cup of tea? Uh, and you're not going to spend four hours vacuuming the house. Um, and you know what? If your house is so bad, just go to McDonald's, have a cup of tea. And, and let's invite people who look different to us, different ages, different ethnicities, different skin colors. Let us be this holy nation that love and care for each other. How are we going to reach a city with the gospel? Well, here's three simple things that would make a big difference. Pray, love, show hospitality. I think we'd be a long way to reaching lots of people. But there is... Um, this final thing about using your gifts. Verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. See, every Christian has been given gifts. It's a wonderful description here that they're... Um, we steward, stewards of God's grace. We can actually um, be those who pass on the grace of God to each other by serving each other with the gifts and abilities that we have. Um, there's two broad categories. There's speaking gifts, there's serving gifts. Both are equally uh, essential in the life of the church. We're equally loved by God. Uh, he made us... Um, and our identity shouldn't be tied up with, with what we do in service. It's all about who we are in Christ. And as a nation of priests, as a spiritual temple, the body of Christ, we all got different functions. And we, as we work together, we will grow in maturity. See, membership is not a, a passive activity. It's a commitment to serve one another in love. 
Uh, I, I run the Membership Connect class um, regularly. If you want to come to the membership class next week, email the office. They'll send you a little file. There's a video you can watch before you come. And then it's a chance to, for me to get to know you, hear your stories, and see if you've got any questions about the content. But I often ask, What's a tr why do you want to become a member? And increasingly, the answer is because I want to serve. And I love that. That shows such maturity that actually I want to become a member of this church because I want to get fully involved. I want to serve. I want to be part of this. I want to contribute. It's a wonderful thing. So um, if you're not serving at the moment, why don't you think about the ministry fair um, and see where you could get stuck in. So what's the role of members? We can often get kind of sidetracked to think about membership meetings and votes and things like that. But you know what? The essential part of the role of members, as it is for elders and deacons, is that we're all working together for the glory of God. We're praying and loving and showing hospitality and using our gifts and building each other up in love. But knowing that we're a priestly people also shapes our decision-making, our governance. Uh, God's people are directly related to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. A priestly people who have his word and access into his presence. And so in decision-making as a congregation, there are a number of important decisions that are brought before the whole congregation of the membership. And we ask the, the members to, to, to vote on decisions. Now the important thing to realize is that is voting is not like voting for a political party and democracy. We're not voting to just express my will. We're asking the members to prayerfully consider what is being proposed by the elders and to see, does it line up with God's word? And uh, if it does line up with God's word and it's going to help advance the cause of the gospel, my encouragement would be that the members get right behind it. But, you know, if the elders start reading some strange books or start watching God TV and get some very strange ideas uh, and start proposing we to change our doctrinal statement or whatever... Uh, and they bring that to the congregation, I hope the congregation would say, no, that's contrary to the word of God. Uh, that's sidetracking us from the work of the gospel. It's a very important role that members play to maintain this as an evangelical, gospel-preaching, God-glorifying congregation. Uh, if anything good has happened over the last five years, we've thought about the roles of elders and deacons, but the truth is it couldn't happen without all the members praying, loving, serving, giving, invested together to see the gospel advance. And if people have got saved over the last five years and they praise God they have, it is because of the whole church working together. I had the privilege of interviewing a lady uh, recently, who was, and I was asking, why do you like coming to church? And uh, we'll show a bit of her story in a few weeks, but uh, one of the reasons that she loves coming to church is she retired, but she's amazed that the young people treat her like a human being. You know, out in the wider world, young people think, an oh, old person doesn't matter. But she comes here, and she's delighted that students and young people will chat to her like she's a human being. And, and that she can share what she's learned about Christ in his word. And they share, and, and it's a mutual encouragement. This body life is so transforming and encouraging. But let's think about decision-making. There's three areas that, um, main areas that we, we bring to the congregation. Uh, if we were to 
think about doctrine. Most of the letters of the New Testament are written to all the members of the church. It's important that we understand the gospel. It's important that the members are a believing membership, that you've come to Christ. Because actually you help determine what is preached and taught here. Uh, where, you know, whether you're going to turn up and give money and, 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 and engage and, and continue a gospel ministry in the city, it depends on all of us participating together. And Paul addresses a number of letters to the whole church with his concerns that they're beginning to go off track. Think about what he says to the church in, in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 1. He says, the whole church, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion. They're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now listen to this verse, very significant verse. But even if we, Apostle Paul and his team, if we or an angel from heaven, whether he's called Moroni or whatever he's called, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Do you see that Paul's calling on all the churches of Galatia to sit in judgment over the preacher? Uh, to make sure that the preacher is not preaching a different gospel than the apostolic gospel. To keep the church on track. Um, in 2 John, Paul, uh, John writes and says that the church should not offer hospitality and support to those teaching false doctrine. They're held culpable for supporting and helping people who preach the false gospel. And so, you know, my friends, you know, why would you go to a church that isn't preaching the gospel? Why would you turn up and put money in the plate to help someone who's actually given up preaching the gospel years ago? You'd be helped accountable before God for that. The Lord Jesus speaks to the churches in, in the book of Revelation and he calls on them to repent for tolerating those who teach false doctrine and promoting ungodliness. And you can see from the Bible that the congregation can, is not infallible. It can get things wrong. It can make bad decisions. But we need to be a people who, are, who love the word of God, who are committed to the gospel and call the elders accountable to make sure that gospel is preached and taught. The second area that uh, we as church play a part in uh, together in governance is the appointment of leaders. There's no explicit teaching in the New Testament about um, the church voting on its elders. Uh, but we saw from Acts chapter 6 last week that the, um, they did somehow choose from among themselves men who were like deacons. We don't know how they did that, but they had some mechanism where they chose spirit-filled men who they thought would be suitable for overseeing the distribution of food to the widows. It's interesting that Paul, in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy and in Titus, tells the, um, Timothy he should look for people who are above reproach. It's about their reputation. How do others see them? And so we as members, we're asking you as, as, as members to prayerfully consider who you see functioning as elders. That's the nomination process. So you've got this Sunday and next Sunday to put those nominations in. 
And we as elders will come up with a list of those who are willing off, off those nominations. And we're going to come back to you with names of who will be the elders for the next five years. And we're going to ask you to prayerfully consider, are you happy to approve these people? And, and say, yes, they are above reproach. We do commend them. We are asking them to lead us as a church. Thirdly, in the area of church discipline. In Matthew chapter 18, which we began to look at, we saw uh, if a brother or sister refuses to listen uh, when they've sinned against someone, even after taking some witnesses, the final stage is you bring it to a church as a whole. And if, the whole ch- if they don't listen to the whole church calling on them to repent, then it's time to be treated as if you're not a Christian and say, look, we're going to put you outside the membership of the church. We can't recognize you as a brother or sister in Christ. We see in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul is telling the congregation to discipline a member who's engaged in an inappropriate, um, sinful relationship. And that if he doesn't repent, he should be put out of the fellowship. In 2 Corinthians, it speaks of the majority of them had and indeed inflicted this punishment. It's described in 2 Corinthians 2. And then he urges the church to make sure they restore that person back into the fellowship now that he's repented. And so we see that the congregation does play a part in, in the final say of who's in the membership or not. Now, most of this work is dealt with by the elders, and we deal, deal with it privately. But if actually we get to the final stages, we would pull the members together and uh, discuss these matters of why we feel we have to put someone out of the fellowship. To my knowledge, that's only really happened once over the last 10 years. So in addition to these um, practical areas, uh, these, uh, these, these areas in Scripture, we practically also look to the members to say, look, if we're going to sell this building and buy this building, are you behind us? Because guess where the money is? It's in all our pockets. Uh, every year we bring a budget to the members and say, hey, this is the budget for next year. I, I, do you approve the budget? And by the way, when we're saying do you approve it, we're saying are you willing to support this financially? That's what we're asking. When the, when the congregation says we approve it, we, we step out in faith that people are going to continue to give to support the plan that the elders have laid out and the hard work that uh, Trevor and the finance team do with it. So, I hope you can see that the congregational members play an absolute critical role in how church works. It's the essence of our life together as we love and serve each other using the gifts that God has given us. We build each other up in our holy faith. And... uh, In terms of how we make decisions, we see the church is Jesus-ruled, it's elder-led, it's deconserved, and it's congregationally governed. And we do so as gospel partners, looking to see how we can spread the gospel and glorify God in our congregation together. That's how church works. And if you've got any other questions, email me, uh, chat to me afterwards, I'd be happy to do so. We are going to Pray, sing a song, and then we're going to have a very important part of our meeting, coffee. Now, why is that an important part of our meeting? It's to put something in your hand so you feel secure enough to stick around so that you can talk to other people, and that's where we can serve each other in love, find out about each other, help each other. This is a critical part of what we do. Um, So let's pray.